welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This episode of Water for Fighting is brought to you by Resource Environmental Solutions. Res is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. All right, I think you're all going to like this week's guest a lot, Carter Henney. He's a Polk County guy who I describe as a cross between Jacques Cousteau and Steve Irwin. He's a marine biologist with an entrepreneurial spirit, and he spent some time in his early professional life working at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. Carter's now the president of Sea and Shoreline, and I'm psyched he agreed to give me some time while he was in town. Carter, it's great to see you here in Tallahassee. Welcome, sir. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you. So you were born in Winter Haven, and we have a lot of of Polk coming through uh, this, uh, I'm using my quote fingers here, studio. But your story, like many people's, like my family's as well, did not begin in Polk County necessarily. Talk to me about your parents a little bit. They're from Indiana, or at least they met in Indiana? That, that's right. And it's not surprising that you'd have people from Polk. It's pretty much the center of the universe, <laughs> according to us. Yeah, so family, uh, my parents met at Indiana University. My dad was going there for optometry school at the time, and my mom was going through law school. And, you know, just like every good college romance, they uh, met in the laundromat <laughs> and uh, struck it up, and that was it. Nice. I want to go back just a little bit further, just because it's an interesting story, and and I'll tell people as well. It's like I, I it's a it's a long winding tale for you, but I liken you kind of to a mix. I was thinking about it the other day. It's like how to describe Carter Henning. I think it's a cross between Jacques Cousteau and Steve Irwin. Oh, great! And we'll get to some of that later. It's like, but I think some of that that personality comes probably from your grandfather. He was a professional baseball player and a bunch of other things as well. Tell me about him a little bit. Yeah, that, that's right. And that's actually how my dad was born and, and grew up in Polk County. My grandpa was hired on as the first faculty member of Polk State College, Polk Community College at the time, now Polk State College. He went on, my, so my dad grew up in, in Polk County, mm-hmm. went to Winter Haven High School, went to the same high school as my dad. My dad actually went to Polk State College or Community College at the time, then to USF. And then the, I guess there was only two or three optometry schools in the country at the time. Mm. And uh, one of those was at Indiana University, and that's that's how he ended up there. And then my mom, she's from, I think it's Kendallville, and my, my little sister's Kendall. And then she grew up basketball fans, mm. whole family, big Bobby Knight uh, folks, and um, it just was a natural fit for her to go to Indiana. Yeah, and that's it's funny. It's like obviously, you know, basketball is life up there. But you and I talked not long ago about about yourself, and you played some sports, but basketball wasn't one of them. Is that sacrilege? Like, was your mom heartbroken? It, yeah, no, she wasn't heartbroken because my older brother he was good at it. Okay, so he he played basketball. I, I played some sports, uh, obviously baseball, basketball growing up, and we would go, uh, my grandpa would take us up to University of Kentucky where he played for basketball camp. I remember just long, long, long road trips going <laughs> up to Kentucky with 
him in the fast lane, everyone going around us in Atlanta traffic. It was a nightmare. Oh, nice. But, but we got to play um, with the, the players, and because of his relationships um, at the time, I think it was Calipari was the coach there, mm-hmm. and uh, just got to see the behind-the-scenes aspect of it, which was really nice. Nice. But let's get let's get to you a little bit, because you mentioned a little bit of sports. Like, But I want to talk about what you were like as a kid beyond the sports, you spent a lot of time out. You had to have spent a lot of time outdoors. So I'm the middle child. My mom had, or my parents had three children, and uh, she affectionately refers to us as the three black sheep of the family. I'd say I probably take most of that honor. Yeah, she wanted us outside. So I was the uh, youngest kid in the neighborhood. I was the middle child of our own family, and uh, all the other neighborhood kids were, I don't know, probably two to ten years older than us, and or older than me. And so it was just general goofing off. There was a cul-de-sac, and at the time in central Florida, not every lot was developed. Some had trees on it, and there was some swamps behind it and some retention areas. And we'd go back in, in, and uh, tree forts, and just general little kid stuff. It was on a big hill, surprisingly. It was on the edge of Eagle Ridge. And mm-hmm. so we'd get skateboards or bicycles or rollerblades and figure out how fast we could go and what we could break and, and just general messing around. Yeah, at some point, though, I think you, you'd mentioned, I think you were about maybe 11 or 12. You said you moved to like to live on a lake itself. Which one was that? Yeah, that was Lake Daisy. So that was awesome. So growing up on a neighborhood off the lake was was fun. My dad would take us down fishing to uh, the local uh, boat ramps. But then it was in your backyard and you could do it. And then that's when it became something that I not only liked to do, but I could do it whenever I wanted to, and I could get good at it. And so I was just constantly in the water. Started out with a John boat, had a John boat with a motor for about three days, <laughs> and uh, or excuse me, three hours, and uh, oh, wow. t- tiller handles, uh, a PSA, uh, if you put a motor on a boat, make sure it's all the, the screws are tightened down so it hangs on to the transom. Um, but yeah, so sank the motor and I was back down to oars. So now, so now it's like, I'll skip, I'll skip forward real quick for that. It's like, do you, the folks that you work with now, y'all spend a lot of time on boats. Did they have to double check when, when you're in charge of a boat that you, you strap the motor on, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been known to mess one up. All right. So speaking of water, speaking of fishing, speaking of being on the boat, you actually started, you say the first fishing club ever in, was in Florida or is it beyond that? So going back to sports, I always, our entire family is incredibly competitive at weird things. And I've got that competitive gene. All my friends were going to play football in high school. And I said, well, I've never played football before. All the cool kids are doing it. There's cheerleaders. Let's, let's do it. So bad idea. I remember being on special teams. I was defensive end in special teams. I really just defended the water bottle mostly, but the special teams was just a kick in the pants. And I remember going south. This was ridiculous. You better pick a sport that you're good at. And the only thing I was good at was fishing. And okay. so I uh, went to the, I think it was dean of students at the time, and, uh, and a couple of buddies. And uh, we started the high, first high school fishing team or c- club. In, in the country at the time, which was just a ton of fun. We would go out, anyone from canoes, kayaks, to full-scale bass boats. We had 
cheerleaders, the way the fish in, the dean of students would boil peanuts and drink bush light on the edge of the bank. And it was, it was just really, really good. And uh, it went from just our high school to the, the following year, we got other schools in Polk County and then regional and then statewide. And then some of the folks actually that were original members went on to professional bass fish and, and some started teams and, and colleges. And now it is where it is today, which is really cool to see. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that a little bit on, on the phone. I was most astounded by how much the purse was of this fishing competition. You, you said some guys wanted to be pros. Like, being pro at fishing happens to be pretty lucrative if you're any good at it, right? Yeah, it's 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 crazy. It, you know, you're in high stakes. I mean, it's just uh, man versus beast out mm. there, and, and it, it's just it's awesome. What was that? What was that purse? Like three and a half million dollars? Uh, 2.8. 2.8. 2.8. Good Lord. So you can read more about it on, uh, it's been all over Barstool Sports. It's been over um, all kinds of different magazines lately and uh, a couple lawsuits filed out of it, but uh, we'll see. So speaking of your time on the water, this is, you know, in high school, even a little bit before, did that have an impact on your mindset? Was there something going on at the time where you're like, hey, this may be something that I want to do for a living, not just the fishing itself, but in terms of how you saw the natural world around you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've always been a little bit quirky and always excited about the outdoors and, and really curious and trying to understand it. And when you're fishing, fishing isn't hard. It's just recognizing patterns and then recognizing with enough conviction that you're changing what you're doing. So it's just really repetitive. And growing up in Polk County, the mantra was we had 100 lakes within city limits. And you would see lakes in some sort of development or natural or whatever the case may be. And you got to see these repetitious um, cycles of clean water and habitat being overly developed and poorly managed. And so you get to see all these different cycles. And and that, that was always really curious to me. I knew I wanted to work outside. I didn't know what that looked like. But just the, the beauty of what we do and working in the environment is there's, there's really no right answers. There's less wrong answers. And then just figuring out, teasing away the gray. And, and that's, that's what I love to do. Is that, is that what took you to USF then? You studied biology at USF, right? Right. Was that something that fed you into that? Or was it still hey, biology gives me some options in terms of just being in a scientific field. Yeah, so my dad's an optometrist. Uh, There was a heavy campaign pressure to become an optometrist. There's nothing wrong with the sport or the the profession. I'm sorry, Dad. It just wasn't for me. (laughs) And and I knew that in my heart of hearts, but I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be outside. And one of the smartest things I've ever done was a ridiculously stupid thing is just uh sit in my dorm room by myself probably with a couple libations and just like every other college student trying to figure out what they want to do with their life and what I did was I started with a a blank sheet of paper and started at the top and I kind of wrote what my attributes and what I was good at and what I was passionate about and then on the next line I would I would try to write jobs that I thought had those qualities. And then I just kept going down into a triangle, upside down triangle, lower and lower. 
And I got to the end and became a professional fisherman or a farmer. I really didn't have a conviction on whether I wanted to be one or the other, so I just Googled fish farming and just fell in love with aquaculture and farming fish. And I knew it would take me outside. I knew it would feed my creativity side. I knew it would fund my intellectual side. And, and it was a growing in- industry, and I, I thought I could make a mark at it. And so, so through school, I, was, I didn't specialize in marine bio or botany or environmental. It was kind of, hey, if I can't get this aquaculture thing going, then I can fall back and become an optometrist. Then, and really, that, that helped me out in, in my career because I took a lot of intensive uh, chemistry, biochems, and, and a lot of those courses and also, it's like I'll I'll tell people it's like if if you see Carter in person somewhere, it's like I want to get into too much of it now. It's like, but I asked a question because uh, I'm talking about your time in in college, and I and I talked to one of your colleagues before you and I you know sat down to talk. Okay, and they said, hey, ask ask Carter about the alligator story. And I said to you on the phone, hey Carter, tell me about the alligator story because I want to talk about that. And you said which one. <laughs> And so folks out there, if, if you get a chance to, I don't know if, what the statute of limitations is for uh, alligator situations. Right. But if you see him, make sure you, you ask uh, uh, Carter about to tell you about at least one of them. So back to the, the story large, you're finishing up at USF. You've decided the kind of person you want to be professionally. And then it took you to, was that fish and wildlife right out of college? So uh, it was actually during college. Okay. My second junior year. I was reading the high school news or the college newspaper. I saw that there was a scuba diving tournament yeah. that was coming up. So I participated in this scuba Olympics tournament. And and there I met a lady that was, her name's Maki. So shout out to Maki. That was the microbiologist at FWC down in St. Pete. She introduced me. I was just kind of telling her what I wanted to do, like big picture. And she says, oh, my roommate is the intern coordinator for FWC's fish hatchery down Port Manatee. I'll introduce you. And I just kind of sleep at night. I was I was just beside myself, excited, doing all the research. Lo and behold, uh, I ended up being an intern there. And then they hired me uh, shortly thereafter. Had a job coming out of college, making uh, just all kinds of contacts from around the state and globe. And, and it was just an incredible experience to, to learn aquaculture from just true masters at it. Yeah, I like how you tried to, to gloss over that competitive scuba diving as though I had no idea this was a thing. I thought competitive scuba diving was trying to find, you know, sunken treasure or something like that. Tell me, because you won an event, right? Yes. Tell, tell me about what competitive, tell folks out there what competitive scuba diving is and the, the competition that you were involved in directly. Yeah, that's that's um so have no idea why the spirit moved me on this. It was a, a one and done. Um I was the gold medalist for underwater bicycle racing. So uh got that on the mantle. So the underwater scuba diving was uh, Olympics was swim across the pool and not deviate. You'd swim through hula hoops and so you had to get your buoyancy right. There was a blow up balloons and lift uh something and then there was a, a tow where you had tow an unconscious diver and then what i was in was the the underwater bicycle racing true story throughout my life is if everybody's playing one game i'll figure out some (laughs) other game and so i was watching these guys guys and girls trying to to ride their bikes underwater and they can't get any traction because there's no there's no buoyancy and so i stood stood up out of the water on top of the bicycle got traction 
And by the time anyone figured out what was going on, I was three quarters of the way through the race. So, yeah. So, so you described uh, several events, all the ones that you didn't win, that I can see the the real world application uh, of it. What's the real world application of the bicycle race underwater? It gives you something to talk about <laughs> if, on podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I say congratulations to you, sir. I want to take just a moment and talk about my friends at Res. Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders, but the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, RES addresses the complex challenges facing our state with our unique operating model of taking full responsibility for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, RES is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join Res on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about Res and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. So how long did you spend at Fish and Wildlife? Uh, a little over two and a half, three years. I think the entrepreneurial spirit, which you'd always had, I think it was you meeting someone in particular that you're still involved with to this day, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Working um, outside and I had a little bucket full of fish, feeding redfish, and I just love it. I still love it. It was such a cool job. This uh, older gentleman in a semi-truck pulls up and waves me over, and I thought he got stuck or something. I didn't know what was going on, and he rolled down his window and he said, you're the only one I ever see running around out here. Do you want a job? And I said, how much are you paying? <laughs> and it told me it was a little more than I was making in the state. And I said, well, what, what do you do? Hmm. What do you want me to do? And he goes, we, we grow seagrass. And, and I said, holy cow, this, this could be really, really fun. Get to travel around. I knew I wanted to work out in the outdoors, and I knew I wanted to make a difference. I thought by farming fish, you take pressure off wild-caught fish, and uh, it jumped on it, and I'm a kid. I love boats. I love barges. I love equipment. I love I love habitat and being outside, and the, and the job kind of entailed melding all of those skill sets together and, and just look, never look back. How wide was that? I mean, because you were down in, you're, you're still in the Port Manatee area with Fish and Wildlife at the time? Correct. Was was Jim working beyond that area? I know he, he's in, what, Apollo Beach or Ruskin, someplace right, like that Right, Ruskin. So he was uh, leasing out some sod farms from Tico at the time, growing sod and doing some seagrass experiments at the time. So Port Manatee had great salt water, and he was trying to figure out, or I don't want to say perfected, but he was well on his way to becoming. No one else was growing seagrasses at the time. He just dug a hole out in the middle of his sod farm, pumped seawater into it, and started growing uh, mm-hmm. shoal grasses. So he was a great mentor. There is no box that, you know, even to stay within the lines. So he's just a super creative guy and, and able to tie just 
so many different facets together. It's just really cool to work with him. And is he, uh, he was like a literal farmer, though, by trade before. I mean, beyond just the sod and experimenting with the seagrass, it's kind of interesting. Like you talked about your checklist, and, and I don't think that's by accident that you mix farmer and fish together. So tell me about the, the evolution of, I mean, it's no, it's no accident that, you had farming and, and fish, and then you end up with Jim Anderson's like, but, but tell me about the evolution of that technology. How involved were you with, with him? Like, how long was he at it when you kind of joined the scene? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it had been, I joined the scene probably in 2012, and uh, he started in the mid-90s, and we're not even close. I mean, I think we're pioneers of it and some of the world leaders. We've been growing corn as a civilization thousands of years, and yet it's still so risky that the Fed subsidized crop insurance for it. Mm-hmm. And we're not there with corn, and we're darn sure not there with native plants and seagrasses. I think it's just incredible. Our, you know, our organization spending so much time trying to hone in on our craft and just apply it from a multidimensional uh, vector, whether it's water quality or or wave attenuation or light. There's so many different variables out there. It, it takes many people, many lifetimes to really hone it down. And, and Jim, he's got a bug for it. He can't help himself. He's got to tinker with it, and it's really cool. Were you kind of the educated salesman under that scenario when you were you were teaming up with him? Talk Well, first, let me start at the beginning. You mentioned the technology that he was working with in terms of breeding seagrass to to be better and better. Talk about those activities, what he was up to, the breed of of seagrasses to make them do better. Can you talk about the evolution of that and what he's using, and then talk about how you work to move that forward into wider use? So all plants act a little different, just like anything, right? There's short people, there's tall people, there's wide people, there's skinny people. And, you know, some of that is learned over time, but uh, some of that's in in the different genetics, right? And so Jim kind of took a Mendel's Peas approach to it and uh, kind of basic and and rudimentary. But then we started learning that, man, some of these these plants grow in different conditions, and we're always trying to further the science, trying to de-risk this mm-hmm. occupation, and looking for plants that grow in poor water quality conditions, mm-hmm. bring them back to the nursery, and then breed them, crossbreed them, whatever, with other plants based on whatever conditions they are. I'm, I'm really excited we're, we're dealing with native plants, right? We're not doing mm-hmm. anything crazy here. I'm, I'm really excited to see where that goes. It started mostly in the freshwater side. It's moving more and more into the saltwater side. It makes a difference. We did, you know, one, one example is about three, three, four years ago, four years ago. We did a, a job and we planted seagrass in, I think it was about 68 to 72 parts per thousand salinity in, in this area. And we, we guaranteed our work. And planting in in salt water that's double the strength of the ocean, mm-hmm. and we bombed. Man, we crashed. We did not do good at all. But we warranty our work, so went back to the drawing board. What the heck happened? You know, we're not going to do the same thing again. And we started looking in the that watershed, and we found plants that were growing under those conditions. Brought those back to the nursery. Uh, grew those plants out. Um, then planted them back out at scale and had great survival rate. So 
It's just one example. I give you dozens of others. Well, let's stop. I mean, let's stick with with that for a minute because I read plenty of articles and columns. I've even heard people in person here in Tallahassee say the survival rate of seagrass planting, whether it's for mitigation purposes or restoration purposes or otherwise, is exceedingly low. I think I was hearing something like in the 30s. I'm not sure if if uh, I remember. Yeah, that's right. But the work that you and Jim have done to that point. You're getting you're getting much better numbers than that, right? Hundred percent, not hundred percent survival, but much better numbers. Um, yeah. So our survival rates are really dependent on the project, and so what we try not to do is we, we are a scientific organization. Yes, we love working with scientific partners. That's not our goal. You know, our our goal is not to produce uh, white paper research, even though we've been involved with many papers. Uh, our goal is to get plants where they're currently not. Mm-hmm. And, and in doing so is you got to figure out why the plant is not there to begin with, right? It makes no sense to plant seagrass where it's not there already without knowing why it's not there. It could be a recruitment issue. It could be a wave issue, light, overgrazing, sediment issue, agronomy. It could be a million different things. But mm-hmm. if you're not addressing the root causes of why it's not there, you're not going to have any success. Just going beyond the narrative that it's all one thing or, you know, it's a game of net sums. One factor that kills seagrasses, and it's not one factor that's going to get seagrasses back. There are no silver bullets when it comes to biology. If anyone tells you there is, hold on to your wallet. But that's one of the, the struggles that, that folks in government have. I spent tw- you know 20 years in it looking after taxpayer dollars, spending taxpayer dollars. And, and in the end, I think people are okay with, with money being spent, but they want to know that they got what they paid for. And the danger there is spending millions of dollars on something that doesn't make it. But you're saying a lot of folks are just looking at it the wrong way in terms of how they employ those things you were dealing with the underlying causes yeah um, before before doing it yeah so seeing shoreline fast forward now seeing shoreline started off in 2014 uh, we're primarily doing I call it 90 percent of our business with seagrass mitigation mitigation seagrass planting is much different results on whole than restoration and and the difference is it has to be there so it, it causes practitioners to look at those underlying causes, right? The problem with it, though, is it's expensive in a lot of cases. And so now, fast forward to today, we're 90% restoration and 10% mitigation mm-hmm. is because we've solely focused on bringing costs down by looking at what factors and what projects are good to where you can fix minimal, uh, you know, small, small dollar uh, factors to get seagrasses back. And so when we're talking about restoration or, or planting seagrasses as a whole, it's just looking at those underlying causes and figuring out how bad do you want seagrasses there? You know, what, what links are you going to go? And if seagrasses, if you're planting project like that project that described with really high salinities, how do you have those reasonable assurances that you, that you are going to be successful? And that's the fun part of the job. And what do you, what do you attribute the more recent advancements or recent attention toward this type of restoration? It's not something, you know, and you and I have been around each other for about a year. Even during that period of time, it seems like that people are thinking about this type of restoration as though 
it were second nature, whereas before it may not have been. What do you attribute the kind of increasing success, whether it's you or anyone else, like what, the increased success in terms of getting folks to pay attention to what you do? It's just a business decision at the end of the day. In mitigation, you're not in control of whether some entity is going to impact seagrasses in some way. So the projects being so spread out, it's just a high dollar amount. And so what we did is we made a conscious decision. Hey, we're going to lower our costs and we're going to make up for those net margins by doing a lot of restoration projects and doing them very, very well. And by lowering the cost, I remember doing seagrass mitigation projects for half a million dollars an acre. And you're not going to fix anything from a restorative impact. You just can't make that return on investment work. But sub 100,000, sub 50, some 30, uh, you know, depending on what the project is. Well, now you're talking about single digit return on investments between three to five years and sooner in a lot of cases. And that is why that, that business conscious business decision is why we started to just do more restoration. Talk about the improvements in how you deploy the seagrass. I, yeah, I've seen your operation in person where you're dealing with substrate that shouldn't be there in advance. You're using interesting new tools. Talk about that kind of technology, not just, we've talked about what Jim Anderson did in terms of the right plant and bending it to the right place. Talk about like some of that technology as well in terms of like how you plant it the secret sauce, yeah, at least for seeing Jordan, like if you can. First and foremost, every project's different, and they all have different parameters around them. We've had a lot of success just focusing on the agronomy. So, these, tell me what agronomy is first. Oh yeah, sorry. So soil sciences. So get getting your soil right. You know, if if you get the ground right, it becomes a lot lot easier. And at the end of the day, seagrass is still a plant. It's a cool plant. It's hard to grow, and it's really important. provides a lot of ecosystem services. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't overcomplicate it. It needs nutrients. It needs substrate, and it needs light. That's the three things. And so looking at the substrate as a a parameter that we, we can control, whether that's bringing the dredging or vacuum dredging sediments out. In a lot of cases, in soft sediment, manatees, turtles, ducks, deer, cows, people trampling, you name it, they'll break the, the rhizome or, or the roots of the plant and cause it to wither away. And if in the case of manatees, if it's really, really soft ground, well, the, the manatee just pulls the entire plant out instead of the leaves breaking off and then sprouting new leaves. And, and so just really paying attention to that that mindset of get the ground right and make sure you have everything else is fine and it all comes together. Is that a part of the, the days when there were worse success rates because people didn't deal with those underlying conditions to make sure that they were right so when you planted, a manatee didn't just come by and, and pull it straight back out of the... Yeah, ground. exactly. And so we've been really working hard um, on figuring out what soil compaction levels are necessary for seagrass or submerged aquatic vegetation as a whole so it doesn't rip out and it doesn't create anoxic conditions. In a lot of these areas, they're not fun areas to work in. They're upland cut canals. They're canals that get just inundated after every red tide. They get a fish kill in there. It creates anoxic conditions, low dissolved oxygen, creates fish kills creates conditions where you get these cyanobacteria blooms and it builds up over time. 
And without restoration, those problematic areas become regional problematic areas because, A, nutrients, but mostly the uh, cyanobacteria blooms, they drift out of there and they colonize new areas. They, and it just spreads like wildfire, like a, like a cancer. Yeah, tell me, tell me some more about that because you're doing some work in and around the Indian River Lagoon area. What's your take on the thing that's the biggest problem? Is it things like that, that what you just described? What, you know, how do you view the way forward there beyond the, the type of work that's the direct work that you do? Is it, is it those places, those tributaries that lead to the lagoon? What, how do you see it? Yeah, the Indian River Lagoon does not have a 256-mile-long problem. It has 256 one-mile-long mm. problems. Thinking about it from a segmented standpoint it is really important. For instance, Sebastian Inlet, just north of Sebastian Inlet, beautiful water quality. Seagrass isn't above a quarter-inch tall. You know, you can't, you can't blame it on water quality. And there's a couple other spots like that in the Indian River Lagoon. But in other areas of the Indian River Lagoon, you can't see your toes, you know, at the beach. It's just poor, really poor water quality. What's really interesting is talking about it from a, traditionally it was a, a chicken or the egg. And, you know, I think of it as a chicken and the egg mm. issue, right? So I think without some sort of habitat or seagrasses out there, no matter how many water quality projects you, you do, the seagrass just doesn't magically pop back. Right. You know, if it did, it would already be in Sebastian Inlet. However, if you don't do those water quality projects, then seagrasses aren't going to come back on their own regardless. And so we spent a considerable amount of effort and time and, and working with partners on the Indian River Lagoon. We had teammates out there planting today around uh, Tucker Cove and Fort Pierce and setting up seagrass nurseries over there to better identify where uh, recruitment is the rate-limiting step for, for seagrasses out there. And we can't control the spigot coming out of Lake Okeechobee as, as sea and shoreline, but we darn sure can find and identify areas that are ready to be restored and start working on them. The, like the old adage, when's the best time to plant a tree? 50 years ago. Right. Right? So what are we waiting for? Let's go. Talk a little bit about that in in the meantime, because some people are like, great, the plant a tree method of great, we just need 50 years. But you're not waiting for that. There there are folks that are doing work now. There's been legislation in the past. House Bill 1379 is the most clear example of efforts to restore Indian River Lagoon and other places as well you know, in terms of water quality. But in the meantime, y'all have actually done some work in terms of from your own nurseries and feeding manatees, right? There, I know there was trouble with getting enough biomass to, to manatees in some of these areas. Were y'all involved in, in some of that work? Yeah, it was actually a ton of fun. If you had told me in college we, we'd be feeding manatees, I'd, I'd tell you crazy. <laughs> but, you know, all these systems interact with each other. So when a lot of the manatees or a couple of the manatees that were cold stressed from the Indian River Lagoon got transported to Homosassa State Park. And we have a flagship project going on there between Crystal River and Homosassa. We now have so much grass growing that there's just abundant. And the manatees, we would bring plant or leaves to Homosassa State Park, feed manatees and, and set up a schedule. And it was really cool to, to give back and participate in such a way that it was just a feather in the cap, I guess. It was fun. Sure. I, I think of it in terms of, and I saw the place myself, when you talk about the right conditions for the SAVs to, to flourish, you got that, though, in that 
homeostasis springs area, right? In terms of you, you, you get the substrate right, you get the plant right, you get the conditions right, and you plant, and but you get better off in the end than when you when you start. Like it, it'll propagate itself after a while, won't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's part of what we're trying to achieve is a snowball effect. So no matter how low we can reduce our cost for planting seagrasses, if it doesn't do its thing on its own it's never going to be cost. So Crystal River, for example, uh, they set out to do 92 acres of upland cut canals, just completing that now over a period of seven years. And right before their 100-year anniversary as a, as a city, now the grass has spread to over about 350, 350, 400 acres of an 800-acre bay. And that's awesome. That, that's what you want. You mm-hmm. want to double, triple, quadruple your, the investment. And if yeah. you design the project right, that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah, no, that's, and that's a, at least in my mind, when I put on my government agency hat, it's like, hey, what am I getting for the expansion? If you tell me I'm going to keep getting a positive impact, then at least it it certainly keeps the the conversation going the right way. Let me get away from seagrass and SABs for a bit and manatee and fish and invertebrate habitat into what y'all are doing to help protect, I'll call it human habitat uh, in terms of wads. Tell me what a wad is. And tell me how the the work you're doing there is helping to protect communities in Florida. Yeah. So it's funny. In an effort to protect and grow more seagrasses, we've gotten to ourselves into all kinds of predicaments. So in the beginning, we were just a seagrass planting company. And then we realized we had to do more sediment amendments. And so now we do tons and tons of uh, high area, low volume dredging. Well, in some areas, they don't need dredging for seagrass recruitment. They'll need wave attenuation protection. So one of the things that we're really excited about is working with wave attenuation devices, um, creating longshore or offshore breakwaters, planting seagrasses or incorporating some natural habitat behind it and spacing it out at a distance to where boats and can still pull up to the sandbar and then providing that green gray engineering with nature, whatever you want to call it, whatever the buzzword of the the year is, providing that that clean infrastructure to protect, to A, increase sediment behind them. So protect, get more sand back, and then protect, wave it from hitting the shore, all while having sea turtles or terrapins, everything, fish, everything moves, passes through them, but you still get that offshore breakwater. I'm excited about it. I think it's probably, it's coming up as beach renourishment projects become uh, trickier and trickier from a sediment acquisition standpoint. I don't know that we're going to be able to bulkhead the entire state of Florida off. Right. And then I don't think it's the solution everywhere, but I think it's a big solution in a lot of areas that the state of Florida and the world's changing and it's it's moving faster and faster and what we did in the past isn't isn't going to be necessarily the roadmap for the future. I'm not saying that we should throw out the entire playbook, but we need to start really thinking about new technologies, new platforms that are going to protect us and then still have some semblance of habitat and recreation. So, yeah. We're real excited about them. What is a good example of one of those kind of success stories where maybe you used the the wads where you got some of that uh, sand accretion? Because, I, I, look, I saw a lot of places, we have a lot of coast in northwest Florida where I've dealt with where you're losing significant amount of, I'll call it real estate, it's not for sale, but actual land that human, you know, land animal habitat that's disappearing. Is there a place where you've done 
you've done work where you're starting to really start to see some of those successes? Yeah, uh, a couple a couple areas that I can think of is one Simmons Park in South Tampa Bay. Um, one is Sunken Island. Uh, Sunken Island was a bird rookery that every time the beach nesting birds would lay their eggs on the beach, uh, another ship would come in and all the eggs would wash off. So where's Sunken Island? Oh, sorry, Tampa Bay. Okay, Tampa Bay as well. And then right now there's one being put in actually for a seagrass mitigation at uh, the Skyway Pier uh, or Skyway Bridge right there in the mouth of Tampa Bay. Got a couple proposed in um, all around the state and throughout the southeast right now. It's a new emerging technology that's gone through all the peer review literature and wave modeling and all that. So if you want to see one, please just, just let us know and, and, um, and reach out to us. We'd be happy to show you around. Yeah, the, the cool thing about them is that they've got a, a relatively small footprint with the ground. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have all the sloping you need for a traditional riprap. So the seagrass mitigation or impact potential impact is is a lot less so that's that's what turned us on to them and nice yeah and I'll, I'll definitely put your contact stuff we'll put the website all that in the, in the episode notes i've seen some of it you know firsthand but i'm looking forward to seeing the living shoreline the barriers the wave attenuation i want to see that in person i haven't i haven't had a chance yet so i'm looking forward to that what's the professional accomplishment it may be philosophical maybe an actual project but what professional accomplishment are you most proud of by far and away, it is going from a staff of three to around 100 in a short amount of time, less than 10 years. I, I love hiring people. And I know as a, a business owner, you know, you do you do more for with less, and, and we certainly do that. But when we hire, it means that we've got the biology right, we've got a clear roadmap, and we've got a pipeline to continue that out. And we are lean and mean and bootstrapped this thing since the beginning to 100 people now. And so every time we take a hire, very serious. We want to hire super competent people, really top-notch people, and it just feels good that you're on the right track. I could talk all kinds of projects, but hiring's it for me. I like it. What, if anything, keeps you up at night in terms of Florida's environment? Are you cons- is there something out there that you're like, gosh, I'm not, I'm not sure how we're going to tackle this one? You know, Florida's environment is kind of the tale of two cities. I think that most people in Polk County don't know what a, a gopher tortoise is, and they never will. And uh, it's not great. We're developing at such a rapid pace. On the flip side of that, there's plenty of conservation land. Never enough. We'd, we'd love to have more. I'm terrified that if folks at an early age don't appreciate the natural resources, they won't, when it comes time to purposefully tax themselves for restoration or conservation, they won't because they have no background or no history into it. But on the other hand, I, I think water quality is going to work itself out. I think there's so much glaring need for it that there's going to be more emphasis on public-private partnerships, on creative funding, on whatever that mechanism is. It, it's going to come along. And when private sector and the public sector and the NGOs and, and the community and public all get around trying to solve this mission, which it seems like this governor's spent an incredible amount of time, energy, and effort and money on water quality environment. I, I think we're marching in the, the right direction on that, but yeah, it's probably not going to be a whole lot of gophers. Yeah. 
I mean, well, I, I guess you you answered uh, two questions. One, because the, the the other question is, are you optimistic about the future of the environment? Floor sounds like you're both. So and I think that's you know a lot of folks that are similar to be in your shoes, which is like, hey, there's some real challenges. Obviously, Gopher Tortoise is a huge one, especially where you and I grew up, but certainly beyond. It's like, but are you really optimistic about that? I, I, the funding speaks for itself, right? But are you optimistic about how things look 10, 20 years from now? Yeah, it, it just moved. Right, like old Florida, you know, I grew up in Polk County when the citrus industry was still around. It's, there's no relative citrus industry now, and it's just different. There are, are there a bunch of clean lakes in central Florida? Yeah. Are there a couple dirty lakes? Yeah. And that could be said throughout the state. What's that book? Uh, a Land Remembered, mm-hmm. where they talk about chasing the fog. Florida's started out changing a long time ago, and it's going to continue to change. If the residents aren't enjoying Florida's beauty, you're not going to drag me out of the state kicking or screaming. I love Florida. I was born here. I'm a Florida guy. Yeah. It's just, it's just moved. What advice would you give to young people, a young Carter Henney, that's looking at or thinking about going into whether it be public service in the environmental sphere or the private sector, what do you tell them? Go. Do it. I can't tell you how many times I tell people what I do, and they say, oh, I wanted to be a marine biologist, but found out, name your answer. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, right? I think the more people don't become it or follow their dreams is they, they just don't get those internships. They don't apply themselves. They don't go and, and, and try to do it and figure out what they want to do. And so they settle into the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do something, go do it. Good answer. And a good place to, to finish, I think. Carter Henney, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Thank you. All right. Carter has left the building. One thing that I forgot to ask him that I usually ask my guest was how people can find out more about what he's up to and how folks can reach them if they want to learn more about CN Shoreline. Of course, you can always go to their website. That's cnshoreline.com. And, as luck would have it, in Carter's case, he and his team will be down in Marco Island for the Florida Environmental Network's Permitting Summer School. That's next week. So, if you want to find out in person how CN Shoreline can help improve water quality while making shorelines more resilient, or you just want to hear some really cool alligator stories, be sure to stop by their booth. That's going to be right across from the registration desk down there. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Res and CN Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with, and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then... Keep your whiskey close and your water closer.